three weeks from tomorrow, about three dozen of us leave for a trip to the Holy Land. I don't bring that up to rub it in the face of those of you who wished you could go but couldn't, nor am I bringing it up to remind those who are going that they should be walking every day, hint, hint. But I bring it up because of the itinerary. The itinerary that we follow has everything with how to read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So I won't bore you with the details of the hotels where we stay or the meals and the hummus or any of that. And I won't even go into all of the details of the itinerary because, well, North Americans aren't really that good with geography of Israel, except to tell you this. We end up in Jerusalem. Ta-da! We end up in Jerusalem because it's the best part. You could start there, but everything would be kind of downhill. So why would you do that? You build up because Israel or Jerusalem is the climax of the trip. Apparently, Luke agrees. The way he tells his gospel, volume one, and his acts, volume two, has everything to do with Jerusalem. In the gospel, Jesus stays in the Galilee up in north until about chapter 9 when he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you read through the gospel, he's traveling there for a large part of it. It takes him a while, but eventually that's where he ends up, in Jerusalem. It's where he's crucified. It's where he's raised from the dead. The book of Acts, volume 2, goes the opposite direction. It starts in Jerusalem and goes out to Judea, the surrounding area, to Samaria, the so-called despised half-breeds, and into all of Israel, into, well, as Luke puts it, the ends of the earth. What we would now call Europe is what he had in mind. This is Luke's itinerary, but here's the point. What Jesus started in the gospel, the church will now continue in Acts. And I got to tell you, they do pretty darn well. I'm kind of surprised myself. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, but they actually do pretty well. Like in the Gospels, Jesus teaches. It's one of the things he does. And if you look in Acts, the church teaches. And you might think, well, that's not so hard. Well, in the Gospel, Jesus feeds people. And they take up that mantle as well. They feed people. In the Gospel, Jesus heals, and they heal as well. In fact... In the gospel, Jesus raises someone from the dead, and they do that as well. It's pretty impressive. But before, before we pat ourselves on the back, permit me a story. Donald Miller is a self-professed evangelical Christian who many years ago went to school at Reed College in Portland, a school then described by Princeton Review as the most likely to ignore God. And he says it was pretty much true to its reputation. There was just this little bitty cluster of Christians, and they were overwhelmed by the secular nature and once a year by the debauchery, maybe more than that. But once a year they had this kind of renaissance festival where they reveled in the debauchery. Drugs, alcohol, sex, nudity, everything. Well, the Christian group, knowing it was coming said, you know, we really should have a presence at the festival, some kind of witness. And then one of them jokingly said, well, how about a confessional booth? And Miller thought, that's it. 
but with a twist. So they did. They set up a confessional booth, and the first customer was a drunken co-ed who stumbled in and said, I guess I'm supposed to confess all my sins. Is that how this goes? And Miller said, no, the opposite. And he confessed the sins of the Christian church down through the centuries. Things like the Crusades, the burning of women suspected as being witches, on and on, while this co-ed's eyes just bugged out. The truth is that what Jesus started in the gospel does continue, but with mixed results. It's not always consistent. And it seems to me if there is one thing in the book of Acts where the church has totally failed is the inclusion of all peoples. We've not done that very well. In fact, in my read, I think there are four categories. The first one is so blatant that it's on almost every page of the New Testament, not just Luke's writings. It's the rift between Jew and Gentile. Now, you know Jesus was a Jew and his followers were Jews, but even in the gospel, he makes it clear, I didn't just come for Jews. This is for all peoples. But the church, eh, they're a little slow to catch on to that. Halfway through the book of Acts, they have a council. They bring all the bigwigs, all of the smart people, and they debate. Should there be room for the non-Jews in this movement? And thank God it passes. But they had to debate that. I mean, you see the irony? They had to debate whether that would be true. It reminds me nowadays of so many denominational gatherings. You know, they get together every other summer or so to arm wrestle about different things and to debate and to repent of their racism in the 60s while still trying to figure out what their attitude will be toward Latino immigrants and Muslims wishing to live here. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Even now, a trip to Israel, well... It's a, it's a lesson. It's not just ancient history. We don't just look at olive wood and talk about the good old days. The, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is palpable. You can't miss it because there's a wall. But, you know, the, the Christian's history here is it's mixed. Every once in a while you hear stories of somebody on this side and somebody on this side working together. Maybe it's an Israeli teenage girl makes friends with a Palestinian. They are working to bring about healing. The second area is full inclusion of women. They only represent half the population. Full inclusion of women. And Luke does this, and it's really hard for him to pull it off because if you think we're patriarchal, Try living in the first century Mediterranean world. Luke knows patriarchy. So what he does is, in his gospel and in Acts, when he, when he brings a male character out on stage, a lot of times he pairs it with a female character. Like when Jesus is a little baby and they take him to the temple to dedicate him. And there's Simeon who's going to lay his hands on him and bless the child, but also Anna the prophetess. Or Jesus will tell a parable and he'll tell one about a shepherd and in the very next breath about a woman losing a coin. Over and over Luke does this. Even in the book of Acts, Paul gets helped by Aquila and Priscilla. 
This is Luke's way of pairing to say something about the full inclusion of women. My wife and I recently rented and watched the movie On the Basis of Sex, the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Long before she was Supreme Court Justice, when she was working for the ACLU and trying to get equal rights for women. Because as in even as late as the early 70s, there were still laws on the books that allowed discrimination on the basis of gender. And watching that, I thought, not just about the blatant violations, but even the ones that go unspoken, like how many people in this room are paid less for the same job because of their gender? And the church's record, Christianity's record, is not much better on this. I have preached in so many churches over the years where women could not be at this table. Don't even think about them being here. They couldn't be at this table. They couldn't say a prayer. They couldn't hold bread and a cup. But now if we were having a potluck, you know who's going to do the cooking. And when I went to seminary nearly 40 years ago, you couldn't find hardly a woman on campus. I mean, they just didn't exist. I'm, I'm glad to report that now in seminaries across the country, women represent 52% of the enrollment. They just might not get a church when they graduate. See, that's, that's the way this things work. Three steps forward, two steps back. It's the church's dance. The third one is a topic that everyone is talking about, sexuality. And Luke takes it on. In the eighth chapter of Acts, he tells a story about a man named Philip who's sent by God out into the wilderness to meet with a man from Africa who is a eunuch. In the first century, this man was a eunuch and had been castrated so that he could serve in the court of the queen and be trusted. Luke doesn't say anything about the man's sexual orientation. But do you know how eunuchs were thought of? It's not good. Greco-Roman society, for all of their progressive ways, regarded eunuchs as hideous. Josephus, the Jewish writer, called them monstrous. And the Old Testament says they will never be considered the people of God. And Philip joins this man who is reading his Bible. And they have this spiritual conversation. And eventually the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Isn't that an interesting question? You notice he doesn't say, so when can we schedule my baptism? He says, what prevents me? Well, let me count the ways. I mean, there's... The, but Philip doesn't do any of that. In fact, he closes that Bible and he baptizes the man. But here's the way Luke tells it. They both go down into the water and both come up. It kind of makes you wonder if Philip didn't need another kind of baptism in how he would view such people. Many of you know, it made the news, that the United Methodists recently prohibited full inclusion of LGBTQ persons. To be fair, it's because they're a worldwide communion. And the vote from other nations where it was very conservative overrode it. If, if Methodists in the States had voted on this alone, it would have passed many, many years ago. 
but it didn't. And it pains me, and my brothers and sisters in that tradition are devastated. But as I watched that news, I thought about that word. Do you know why they're called United Methodists? Well, it's clearly not their vote on this. It's because they split before and came back together. They split over slavery in the 19th century. And now they appear to be ready to split again. Maybe the church, like Philip, needs another baptism. There's one more, one more category. It's the socioeconomic. In the gospel, Jesus says he came to preach good news to the poor, and he means the poor. And early in Acts, they do it. I mean, there's this line about how there was not a needy person among them, and that's because they took care of the needy. They had poor people. But slowly but surely, something happens in the book of Acts. It starts to move among circles of the elite. That eunuch is described as sitting in a chariot with a driver. He has a chauffeur, and there's not a word about that man. Not a word about that driver. Well, does he not count? And Paul will start to go before kings and queens and courts and he'll appeal his case to the emperor of Rome. And the gospel will go to the seat of power. And some people say, well, that's his way of legitimizing it. Yeah, but what happened to the poor? You know that every election cycle, it'll happen again. There'll be this debate about tax cuts for the rich versus the middle class. And I always think that's a much needed debate. But what happened to the poor? Nothing about the poor. Our track record when it comes to poverty, not so good. I have to confess that when I'm out somewhere playing golf, whatever, and someone says, so what do you do? I kind of mumble the words country club when I say Christian church. I I do. I, I say it real fast. But then I add very quickly about our mission partnerships in the Northeast and how we care about the poor. The churches dance down through the centuries when it comes to inclusion. It is mixed. Three steps forward, two steps back, and maybe sometimes two steps forward and three steps back. I remember years ago being over at St. James United Methodist Church where Representative Cleaver was at the time still pastor and serving in Congress, and he invited Fred Craddock to come. And Fred Craddock was preaching from the Gospel of Luke, and he said, I really think that in Luke and in Acts, there's one word that is key. This word helps you get the big picture. It's the word hindered. The problem is the Greek word gets translated so many different ways, you you miss it. Like, Like, for instance, in the Gospel, you remember this one? The moms are bringing their little babies to Jesus so he can bless them. And the disciples try to stop them. And Jesus says, don't stop them. It's don't hinder them. Or in Acts, that eunuch, when he says, what prevents me from being baptized? He really says, what hinders me? You miss the wordplay. Hinder, hinder, hinder. It's full of hindrances in the gospel, full of hindrances in the book of Acts, including things like shipwrecks and imprisonments. Hinder, 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 hinder. And then the book of Acts ends like this. Paul's under house arrest. That's how it ends, which sounds to me like one more hindrance 
But Luke writes the best last sentence. After two whole volumes, he says, yeah, Paul was under house arrest, but he was preaching the gospel unhindered. That is the last word in the book of Acts. Is that great or what? Unhindered. The church's history that has come down to us called the book of Acts, it ends with that word unhindered. You you know we're getting ready to celebrate our centennial and we're even writing a church history. What do you think ought to be the last word 